Hey there. Welcome back to Great Quarter, guys. This is episode 55. You can notice we have a bit of a different background today. Both Seth and I are recording from home, uh, so excuse any minor detail, minor bugs we may have uh, moving forward, but glad to have you. We've got a fun show. We're going to get into a discussion about inventories and where we think they are going ahead in 2021. We've seen a big disparity between retail import growth rates and retail sales growth, so we do think there's a correction happening. We'll talk about uh, some notes from Craig Fuller and from Henry Byers, our maritime expert on what they think uh, inventories are going to do in the next year. And then we'll get into a little bit of retail expansion talk as well. But before that, let's bring Seth on. How are we, Seth? Doing well, Andrew. All right. So last week, uh, I said that 2021 was off to a wild start. That was on the 5th. Uh, Lord knows that was an understatement. The 6th came. We had a crazy week after that. Uh, the, the same is happening in the retail industry and in the freight industry as well. Things have started off hot. We've got outbound tender volumes up 20% year over year on a rejection basis. We've got a good start to the freight market. So let's hop into you care or not our gauntlet of interest. I'll give you a topic, events, or idea. You tell me you care or not about the idea and why. All right, so the first one is on Amazon. It has shut down its pantry program, which was most recently rebranded to Prime Pantry last. Then this was shut down last Wednesday. Prime Pantry was a monthly subscription service that allowed shoppers to bundle household goods for a flat fee. Seth, you care or not about Amazon shutting down Prime Pantry? I don't care. And um, a lot of that is probably because I've never used it. Um, <clears throat> we used Instacart in my house. And, um, you know, I, I think bottom line is Amazon is experimenting with their grocery offerings and trying to figure out sort of the optimal way to, to integrate Whole Foods and this new fresh concept, as well as their ghost stores. Um, although that being said, uh, I do think they'll figure it out. But uh, I actually think Instacart, which is going to IPO uh, in 2021, and maybe even Walmart are, are doing a better job right now. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, I would say that Amazon's growing really fast. I saw, I didn't see Q3 numbers. I saw Q2 numbers for Amazon online groceries were up 300%. So they're growing fast, uh, but you're right about them experimenting. This was one of their kind of earliest efforts to boost sales of packaged goods and food and beverage. Uh, you know, and, and the whole order, it didn't make all that much sense. It, it was kind of like a... Uh, just a bridge to get to to get Amazon to the point where they are now, where they can pretty much deliver any good at any cost uh, at at free for Prime membership or at a very low cost for non Prime members. You know, this pantry was basically as much stuff as you could fit in one box. You could get it delivered uh, for a flat fee of five ninety nine. Uh, so you basically wanted to you know uh, you you wanted to fill up that box with as much stuff as you can to spread that that cost of delivery over all the items. Now they're just shifting all of that onto the Amazon website. Uh, the Amazon a spokesperson basically said that pantry users can still order the same goods. They're just not ne- they're not limited to a single box anymore. This you know allows customers to get everyday household items faster without a subscription or a purchase requirement. So you're right, Amazon is experimenting. I do care about this one. I didn't say whether I do or not. I do care uh, because I think that Amazon has, is already beginning to make its way uh, and to be a dominant player in the grocery industry. It's taken them a long time to do this. They they began kind of experimenting and debuting a online grocery delivery service back in 2007 in Seattle. So it's taken them a long time to get to Amazon Fresh, which is kind of their next leg of the grocery uh, industry growth. It's taken them a long time to get here, but I do think they, they will become a dominant player like they have uh, just about in everything else. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think they're going to make some good inroads and, uh, you know, why they originally made the Whole Foods acquisition. I mean, if you look at grocery, it's about a trillion dollar category in the U.S. So, 
every coin of share is worth what ten billion dollars. So um, can be a, a needle mover for Amazon. And not only that, but a lot of brick and mortar retailers, as you well know, uh, have Walmart's and Targets of the world and Costco. Uh, they love that grocery business, even though it's low margin because it drives those regular and repeat customer visits. Right. Get them in the door where they can buy a lot of other higher gross margin items. Uh, so let's go on to our next one. This one is something I think we're going to hear a lot of this earnings season, as well as probably in the Q1 earnings season when that comes around at the end of March. Uh, but this is Bed Bath & Beyond. They missed analyst expectations for earnings per share by about half. I think EPS came in about eight, eight, uh, eight cents per share when analysts were expecting 20 cents per share. The company repeatedly pointed to shipping constraints and elevated freight costs as reasoning for the spoiled quarter. Seth? You care or not? Care on this one, uh, for sure. I mean, it's it's very relevant to, to what we do. Um, you know, I will say, you know, given how closely we follow these markets, uh, I think there's probably something there. Uh, on the other hand, um, I've listened to hundreds or thousands of earnings calls and, and done this for a long time. And I wonder, I do wonder, you know, to solely blame that quarter on freight, um, might be a bit of a scapegoat, but I do think it, like, as you said, I believe in your uh, retail, your point of sale newsletter, I do think it'll be a common excuse, uh, particularly for anybody sort of on the packaged goods or, or retailer side, because uh, as, as you well know, I mean, spot rates are up 40 or 50% year on year. And, you know, uh, any one out of every four contracted loads is being rejected. So they're definitely paying more for freight. Tender lead times are extended, harder to get stuff. Um, you know, even intermodal is in incredibly tight. So I, I definitely think it's something there. Although, like I said, the skeptical side of me wonders, you know, this is a, there's a lot of moving pieces to this story. They're, uh, they've got a new CEO. They're closing down 20% of the store base. They're divesting some of their, they've got four or five concepts other than Bed Bath & Beyond. Uh, it, it, what, what you tend to see in these types of stories with all these one-time charge-offs and restructuring charges is, um, you, a lot of times the, the executives will point to the easiest thing that they can scapegoat um, and, and that sounds reasonable, right? Yeah, I mean, it does sound reasonable. I mean, it certainly doesn't help that same store sales were down 17%, right? Uh, or that foot traffic was dismal. Uh, Placer AI data shows them ranging between negative 40% and negative 20% pretty much all year since the stores reopened in June. Uh, you know, net sales were down 5%. Ecom growth was really strong, up 75% year over year uh, in the latest quarter. You know, like I said, I do think you should get used to hearing this because so this is a, a quote from CEO Mark Triton. He says, we know that freight pressure across retail is here to stay and we've built that into our future plans. And he's completely right. You just mentioned it about the OTVI and OTRI. So here it is from Sonar. You know, you can see this growth that has exploded uh, in July. It's just sustained this elevated bull market that we've had in freight. It's not going anywhere. Consumer demand is, is still uh, pretty strong. Consumer sentiment is, is considerably high uh, and capacity is tight. Yeah, but like, like like you said, the up on tender rejection index is north of 20, meaning that carriers are rejecting nearly one in four contracted loads uh, or contracted tenders. Rather, uh, the market is very tight and this pressure is here to stay. Mark Triton and the CFO said that shipping costs dragged their gross, gross margin down by about 80 basis points uh, in the most recent quarter. So I'll be, I'll be really interested to see, uh, you know, what other retailers are going to play this scapegoat card. Uh, it's certainly you know, it could be, it could be a scapegoat card to get out of, oh, we couldn't attract enough people to our stores. You know, that's certainly possible. Yeah. I mean, I, I will tell you uh, 80 basis points. That's real. That's material, especially when you're in restructuring and turnaround mode and um, you're already dealing with thin profit margins to begin with. That's certainly material, but 
uh, I think you hit on a key line there. He said, we've built it in our future plans. So uh, he's going to have a tougher time using that as an excuse going forward unless spot rates, you know, 320 a mile, unless they continue going up, uh, you know, and uh, which I don't see personally. I, I don't think they're going to come down fast, but at the same time, I don't think we'll be able to maintain this slope as I kind of talked about in Passport research this morning. I mean, I think it's the latest truck stop spot rates are 322, uh, in, you know, including fuel. So um, that being said, you, we may have hit peak freight pressures in the in the first half of 2021, but it will be a common excuse. Yeah, we'll, we'll touch a little bit about the capacity and just the freight market when we get into our conversation on inventories here in a sec. Uh, that definitely has to play into uh, the, the other side of the inventories for the retailers. But before we get to that, we got a couple more of you care Renaz. So this next one is about this new return policy that I'm seeing prop up from a bunch of different retailers. Actually, Walmart, Amazon, Chewy, and Target are all using AI to determine the financial feasibility of different return strategies. The newest one is just the keep it method. The items are typically low cost and non-repeat purchases, but basically you buy something from Amazon or buy something from Target and it's so expensive for them to, for you to return it to them that they just refund you the money and say either keep it or donate it. What do you think of this strategy, Seth? You care or not about the keep it strategy? I care, and I mean it makes sense, right? It, even on the smallest of package sizes, I know from looking at the average parcel rate with UPS or FedEx and in the post office, it's something like eight or nine or ten dollars, even for Amazon. So if you're talking about an item uh, with a purchase price of under ten dollars, uh, that makes absolutely no sense, uh, both from an employee productivity and the amount of you know, human capital that you need in the business, as well as um, we've already got enough uh, capacity constraints uh, in, in everything in freight uh, across the board, not just truckload, but uh, final final mile and reverse logistics is booming. I think that Wall Street Journal article said returns were up 75% year over year in 2020. So, um, you know, I, I think this makes economic sense and uh, you're going to start seeing a lot more of it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, the, the first thing that came to mind was that, you know, age old saying, if it makes money, it makes sense. This one's kind of, if it saves money, it makes sense. Uh, and the CEO of return software provider, Narvar, who I do want to have on, Amit Sharma, he's, he's a brilliant guy. He believes that we're going to see a lot more of this moving into the new year. His, uh, his company provides uh, software that can allow companies to better better conduct returns. So, and he's seeing a big demand for this into the new year. So yeah, it really makes sense for, for no repeat uh, transactions. And I really like the donate idea. So I read a story in one of those articles that a woman bought a, uh, bought a, a pet harness that was too small and Chewy just said, donate it to the, to the close, closest local, um, you know, dog shelter. So I thought that was great. I think those more of those type of, uh, you know, methods to get rid of the stuff rather than just letting it pile up in people's garage is better. Okay, so the next one is a bit interesting. So this one is on our favorite company to always talk about, which is Walmart. They're always making news. This next one, they are partnering with the Robinhood backer Rabbit Capital, or Ribbit Capital, rather, excuse me. They're going to launch a fintech startup between the two, between Walmart and Ribbit Capital. Seth, you care or not about this partnership? Yep, I care. And um, I, I, I think it's just one more instance, um, and I think you'd agree. Walmart is starting to show that they're they're kind of coming into the digital age and they're forward looking. Uh, you know, you've had just so many of these. They've launched Walmart Plus. Uh, they've got the TikTok partnership. Um, they've got Flipkart in India. Uh, you can really kind of go on and on um, just from a digital era. And, and, and I think the partnership, whether or not it turns out to be massively successful, I, I like the strategic thinking behind it. 
you know, with a lot of these financial services booming. I mean, you you know as well as I do, Robinhood is booming. They're going to IPO. I think they signed up like between 10 and 20 million accounts last year. And Walmart has 160 million customers uh, that one, at least once a week either visit the store or the website. So you can see that the cross-selling opportunity for um, for a firm and Credit Karma and Robinhood is massive. And not only that, but um, you know, you really integrate yourselves into the daily lives of your customers because um, a lot of these products, particularly Robinhood, people are most people are using on a daily basis. Yeah, I love what you said. Uh, Walmart is coming to its own, coming to its age, you know, uh, into the age of digital. And they're doing that by doubling down on physical stores. We've heard this from Walmart execs that they are going to, you know, continue leveraging their stores. That is their advantage over Amazon. And they're just doubling down on that here. You know, there's always been, you know, either a bank or the money center or uh, Western Express or whatever, but Western Mutual, whatever money sending service that Walmart had in there. Now they're just going to cut that service out and and fill, fill it in themselves. You know, I, I saw in that article that 6% of adults are uh, unbanked at, currently with 16% being underbanked. I'd say the chances of that population of people shopping at Walmart is pretty high. Uh, you know, just given Walmart's, uh, you know, spread of 4,700 stores across the country, a lot in rural areas or lower income areas. Uh, and honestly, for me, this is just about time. Uh, you know, they're they're becoming they're building themselves into this digital age of being a, a community center with banks and with, you know, a doctor's office, a health center, and now, you know, and also grocery and, and CPG and everything you could ever want to buy all in one place. It reminds me a lot. I've been doing a research and I've talked to you about this offline and that's you know, FIMSA, uh, which is a company in Mexico that says it owns the, one of the biggest Coca-Cola bottlers uh, in the world, but they've very recently in the last decade been rolling out these convenience stores and it's grown like weeds. It's called OXO, O-X-X-O. And this DC stores are basically the the runway for to the internet for a lot of uh, for a lot of Mexicans a runway to e-commerce because sixty percent of Mexicans are still unbanked they have to go to OXO to buy to get their prepaid debit card so they can go and pay for their Netflix or pay for their uh, you know Roblox or whatever they're going to pay online but they have to go through OXO to do it I see that being kind of a similar similar trade off here with Walmart becoming the now. Uh, the, the now digital payment wallet, the interface to uh, to the next to digital payments for these customers. They've already been that. Well, people have already trusted Walmart to to handle their money uh, for a long time, for million for 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 uh, for decades. So millions of Americans have have trusted them for decades. So I happen to see that this is a good move. They're just putting themselves in a better position to take advantage of stuff they were already doing and that people were already doing in Walmart's. Yep, agreed. And I, you know, I'm extremely. I, I think Walmart's making a lot of the right moves and. Uh, it's kind of a slow, sleepy stock, but I think it's going to wake up and just kind of explode one of these days. When right now, I think, you know, Walmart and Costco and, and Target, um, a lot of people in the markets are a little bit um, there. There's kind of a rotation in the value in cyclical stocks. And people think that, you know, Walmart and Costco and all these places where people have been doing bulk up trips, uh, you know, during COVID is, is that's going to decelerate after um you know, after the vaccines out there. And that's probably true to some degree, but uh, I think I think they've also permanently won a lot of share here in COVID. Yeah, agreed. I think some of that spending, you know, obviously it, it, it naturally reverts back to some restaurant spending and less cooking in the home, but I do believe they've won over a lot of, uh, a lot of people. Uh, this year. Okay, last one for you. This is on a potential merger. Uh, it won't be the first time they've tried this, but this is Staples attempting to buy Office Depot. Again, this marks the third attempt to merge the rival Office Supply Superstores. Seth, you care or not about Staples trying to take over Office Depot again? 
I don't care. Um, no, but I mean, I understand why they're doing it. I think, you know, um, I, I wish I knew the, the market share statistics off the top of my head, but clearly they're pretty confident that there's a lot of both either cost or revenue synergies out there in this deal or else they wouldn't keep pursuing it. But I also think part of the reason they're pursuing it is because these are sort of secular declining businesses. Uh, you know, it's, I, I don't even know. I can't even imagine what's happening to the enterprise portion of the business right now. I would think that the PC side and the, some of the printer cartridges, uh, but office supplies, given everybody's working from home, that, that business has to have taken a hit, I would imagine. So, um, you know, maybe they're looking to tie things up um, because just that's the best path forward. When when industries start to decline, um, the, the natural thing to do is to consolidate. Yeah, if you want any data point to highlight the secular decline. So the, uh, the last offer, which was made in 2016, $6.3 billion price tag. This one, uh, just over $2 billion. So just five years later. Uh, so the last one, I find this just you know funny and it's not the only time this has happened. It's not gonna be the only time. Uh, it will happen again. So the last time that these two tried to merge, it was a shutdown by the FTC and the federal judge sided with the FTC and rejected the company's argument that Amazon's then nascent bulk office supplies unit would represent a major competitive threat. Boy, uh, were they wrong about that. <laughs> It's yeah, like, I mean, I mean that, yeah. that um, like I said, I, I'm not close to these businesses anymore. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of just kind of speaking off the cuff here. But it seems that the competitive uh, argument from an M&A perspective, it seems like just letting these two guys get together is not that big of a deal to me, at least, uh, you know, intuitively. Yeah, I, I agree, especially since Staples has said that uh, apparently the last uh, FTC sue it was made because of the the professional services, so the kind of the in-house service uh, companies within both Staples and Office Depot. Staples has said that they will sell whatever uh, units necessary to make the deal go through. So, I, I, yeah, I can't imagine this one being rejected at this point. Both these companies, you know, kind of kind of floundering uh, and, and have been struggling for a long time. But uh, well, excited to see if they go ahead. No, I was just going to say. I mean. They can maybe in a couple of years they can try when they're five hundred million dollar market caps to to merge again <laughs> right. and get through. Right. All right. So that wraps up. You care or not? Let's move on to our main discussion of the afternoon. So it's on this chart that I that I pulled together. So this is data. The blue lines that you'll see on this chart are data from the Global Port Tracker. That is a combination uh, between the National Retail Federation and Hackett Associates. So they uh, basically basically cover and monitor uh, retail imports. And you can see the first half of the year really slow, uh, down huge. And the back half of the year, we saw this explosion of growth. So I'll give you a couple data points here. Uh, as of November, uh, November data was up 24.5% TEUs, retail TEUs up 24.5%, uh, but down from October's uh, 2.2 million one, 2.21 million TEUs, which also set the record for the largest number of containers being handled in a single month since they began tracking this in 2002. The December was projected at 2.02 uh, TEUs, which would be up 17.3% year over year. And one of only six times in 20 years that the total monthly uh, value has hit 2 million. If the December month holds, once the actual data is available, then 2020 will have ended with a total of 21.9 TE, 21, 21.9 million TEUs, rather, uh, which would be up 1.5% over 2019. So basically the back half of the year, the explosive growth in the back half of the year almost nearly uh, completely wiped out the, 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 the downfall, the trough in the front half of the year. 
Um, see, that's what's interesting to me, Seth. I wanted to bring you in here. You know, what do you think when you see that chart? Uh, what first comes to mind after you give your thoughts uh, of what your first, what your initial thought was when you saw that? I'll give uh, our CEO Craig Fuller's as well as Henry Byers, our maritime expert. Yeah, I mean, so a couple things. Um, the first thing that pops into my head is the dark blue line is more volatile than the than the green line, which means. Uh, the imports and the TEUs are fluctuating more than retail sales are. So uh, in the first half of that chart, the, the blue bars are down a lot more and then they're up a lot more. So what happened was, you know, as COVID-19 spread in the spring of last 2020, you know, you've got this destocking element uh, because uh, demand is going down, uh, unemployment's rising, uh, retail sales are falling, and you just have this exaggerated effect. And now we're playing catch up where, the retail imports are now outpacing uh, the retail sales. And then we can get in and talk more about it, but there's still a lot of catching up to do just in terms of that um, inventory to sales ratio. But I kind of talked about this last week on our podcast when we were talking about uh, Deutsche Bank's outlook for the 2021 and transportation markets. And, uh, you know, particularly in industries like transportation and cyclical industries, uh, you get this double bang going in and out of a recession. So you get hit twice as hard um, when you're going into a recession because of the destocking. And then you get, uh, you know, twice as much benefit because you get a rebound in, in retail sales and you get that uh, normalization in the in inventory to sales ratio. And what's interesting is transportation normally, I think, would have gotten hammered in a recession. Uh, that's what we saw uh, in, in some previous ones. But given the fact that everybody's stuck at home and that, that good to services, goods to services, a uh, mix shift benefited transportation. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. I wish I would have seen that chart. I wish I would have made that chart prior to our last episode. I don't think I would have disagreed so much with Amit's uh, thesis on pent up goods demand. If I had seen that and seen that there is still, I think quite a bit of restocking to do that's there's still months behind, you know, we've seen that there's still 15 or 20 ships awaiting, uh, you know, a spot in the in the port of LA. So we've got these weeks worth of freight that's still coming in. Uh, and I, I was kind of expecting that to be to do to make headway uh, to get closer to catching up to retail sales. But let me give you the thoughts of, uh, of Craig Fuller, our CEO. He sides with Amit on this. He said, watch the fireworks when I asked him what came to mind when he saw the chart. He is bulled up on both consumer and corporate balance sheet health. So uh, I believe corporate balance sheets are as flush with cash as they've ever been. Also, uh, you know, the U.S. savings rate is about double the five-year average, currently sitting at about 13%. So uh, consumers have a pretty healthy war chest to go and spend money. He believes there's still a lot of pent-up demand. Uh, and now with the certainty in Washington and an accommodating Federal Reserve, he believes, watch the fireworks. And then Henry Byers basically uh, alluded to the same thing that you alluded to, which is an, an inventory buildup, kind of a correction here uh, in the first couple months of the year. But all that will depend on where demand goes, right? I mean, how much, how much, where can we expect consumer demand to go? I think we're going to, we both expect it to be high. And what, you know, what, what are your expectations for when we see inventories catch up and start making headway and we see a correction in that uh, inventory to sales ratio? You know, I mean, Forecasting stuff like the inventory to sales ratio is really hard. I mean, may, we have a graph here uh, at some point that we'll that we can put up here to kind of show. But basically, there it is. Um, this inventory to sales it, it's basically varied. This is going back ten years, um, and this is from um, Credit Suisse's uh, 2021 railroads um, 
outlook. And basically, over the last decade, it's gone between 1.2 and 1.3 times, kind of averaging 1.25. But what you saw last year was such an extreme year that it blew way out to 1.35 in April when demand collapsed. And then as demand recovered here, uh, it, it blew all the way down to 1.1. And this is from FactSet, and this is excluding automotive. But but you can tell here right now we're still inching along the bottom and we're kind of coming back up. So just to get back to that average, it, it depends on what you assume. If you assume we just get back to average, then you've probably got still a, a, a meaningful amount of time uh, to, to close that, you know, to go from 1.1 to 1.25. Now, if you go back to the to the prior peak, then that probably gives you more like a year or a year and a half or two years. And a lot of that depends on your outlook for consumer sales. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, I think given the depth and the, um, the Keynesian response that we saw in this recession uh, to offset the massive drop in demand for services, I don't think, and, and given, you know, an easy Fed and um, I'm more, I'm, I'm far less worried about the economy. I think, it, I think we're years away from another recession, presuming that these vaccines are actually, we can get them out there and, and vaccinate people and they'll actually take a vaccine and achieve herd immunity. But presuming all that happens, uh, I'm very bullish on the economy, not only in 2021, but, but 2022 and maybe even 2023, because that's how long it's going to take you to catch up, to get back to pre-COVID levels. Um, I'm, I'm more worried about, um, honestly, the, 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 the debt situation and the, and the currency type situation of all this crazy spending uh, that, that has gone off from a stimulative effect. But um, the long-winded answer to your question, I think we've got at least six months, if I had to guess, maybe a year, year and a half in, in the bull case. Yeah, I think it'd be beneficial if I tossed a couple of the NRF and Hackett Associates expectations for the first few months of the year. So they've projected through May uh, their retail import expectations. So uh, for January, they're expecting up 7.7% uh, from a year ago, which was which would be the gen, uh, the busiest January on record. They're expecting a, another big month in February, up about 6%. Uh, and then this is where it really starts to grow, which is in March, April, and May. So you can remember back to March 2020, uh, Lunar New Year happened in China, and then those factories were never able to ramp back up. They were never able to, able to open back up. So we had this kind of glut, uh, or this, this lack of imports come through. Uh, so it, pretty easy comps uh, beginning in March. And so they're expecting up about 20% up 19% in March. Uh, and then again, in April up about 10% and then another huge growth expected in May up over 20%. So imports are going to continue flowing. Like I said, 15 to 20 ships uh, awaiting port spot. Now there's going to be dozens following that retailers are, you know, still trying to, to get back to a, a level of inventory that's even you know, respectable. I mean, we saw empty shelves over Black Friday. We saw empty shelves over Christmas. Uh, even these, especially these stores that are have pivoted and are using their stores as DC centers and fulfilling online orders, they're they're strapped uh, for inventory. So, uh, I agree, it'll take some time to build them back up. But we've got a lot of freight on the way. Definitely, we'll keep the 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 freight market booming uh, for the next few months. You want to talk about capacity? I think we've got uh, two minutes here. We can talk quickly. Uh, you know, we, we touched on it a second ago on what we thought new truck orders and what all this equipment meant. I don't know if you read Zach's chart of the week over the weekend, but he, he talked about when is all this capacity going to hit? Do you have any thoughts? Uh, I did. I read Zach's chart of the week, uh, which people should check out um, on Saturday. But basically, the gist of his chart of the week is truck orders are booming. Uh, the, and I've talked a lot about this in Passport Research and on this podcast and elsewhere. But, you know, you're going you're gonna to take six. These, these truck orders are, are two and a half times replacement rate running up between 150 and 200% year on year for the last few months. 
Uh, however, you're having trouble seating these trucks. And if you look at the overall trucking employment from the BLS, it's still down 500,000 jobs from either, I don't remember if it's pre-COVID uh, times or you know, on year and year. But in any event, given the growth in, in freight demand uh, since that time, uh, you, you would need basically to, you need to get back to 2019 peak capacity to really start to tip the balance back the other way uh, in, in terms of rates and, uh, uh, you know, and capacity swamping demand. That's kind of my view. I, I think trying to do some sort of scientific estimate on this is, is nearly impossible. And there's no great ways to even track capacity. Not even we can do it uh, yet at FreightWaves. So it's kind of a little bit of a guessing game. But again, I think at least six months, when you start to see those headwinds back to services, because I'm a, I'm a big believer that, uh, that, that services demand is just going to absolutely explode. So I'm a little bit, uh, I, I wouldn't say bearish, but just cautious in the back half. Yeah, as am I. Got a generational release of pent-up demand for services coming soon. Excited for it. I'll be excited to be one of them out there spending money on services. That's all we got today. Thanks for your time, Seth. You can find all of our shows on uh, on demand on FreightWaves TV or your favorite podcast player. Simply subscribe to FreightCast to get every single FreightWaves podcast all in one feed. Thank you, guys. We'll see you again next week, 3 o'clock.